show for tonight. And thanks to KRUI for letting us have our first in-studio live session uh, with our special guest, uh, Senator Jeff Merkley from the great state of Oregon. I'm here, at, per usual, with our very talented and esteemed co-host, Stacey Walker. Say what's up, Stacey. What's going on? Misty Rebick. Hey, hey. Um, and we're, we're here once again with Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon, uh, first elected to the United States Senate in 2008 and reelected in 2014. Senator Merkley, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you had, you've had a busy schedule in Iowa, so thank you. We're looking forward to the conversation. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Let's, let's just dive right in. Um, you've made uh, quite a few headlines when you visited a immigration detention center uh, in Texas, and you exposed, elevated, you're looking to sort of find out more information about the conditions that some of these children that have been separated from their parents, uh, the conditions that they're being housed in. Uh, can you just talk to us about that experience, why you went there, what you saw, and sort of where the situation, the issue's at right now? Uh, absolutely. There's a new policy from the Trump administration that really is changing the entire nature of how we respond to people arriving on our shores who have experienced adversity and persecution abroad. You think of the Statue of Liberty and it says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's, that's a welcoming message. But the new message is, if you're fleeing persecution abroad and you arrive here in the United States, you will be arrested as a criminal and your children will be torn out of your arms. America has never treated people in the world pursuing or fleeing persecution in this, in this fashion, and they never should. It's, it's absolutely immoral, and it was concocted with Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, with the President, with the Chief of Staff, uh, and they decided, you know what, if we treat the children in this fashion, inflict trauma on them, we will discourage people from seeking asylum in the U.S. The idea of injuring children, damaging children, inflicting trauma on children in order to influence parents is uh, absolutely evil. So that's why I went down there to find out, is this really going on here in America? I, could, I couldn't believe it was true. So I went first to a processing center where immigrants are brought in, and um, then in an adjoining room there's a warehouse with big uh, cells, if you want to call them that, but they're built with fencing. They look like big cages. And the, um, uh, in one of them, uh, all these young boys and another young girls, and these young boys were lining up by size to be able to eat. And so they had the youngest in front, uh, the oldest in back, and the youngest was just knee-high to a grasshopper, uh, maybe four or five years old. And I thought about the fact that what I was looking at at that moment was some boys who may have arrived as unaccompanied minors, but a number of the folks in that cell were individuals who had been taken away from their parents within the, the previous 24 hours or maybe just an hour or two before, before I arrived. Then those kids are being shipped off to a detention center. So I drove up the road to Brownsville to a detention center. It's a big Walmart. And this uh, Walmart's been converted over. I had asked permission to visit from the Office of Refugee Relocation. They had said, no, you have to give a long waiting period, and then maybe we will approve, maybe we won't approve. But I thought, you know, I'm down there. Let me go see what's going on. I'll knock on the door. I'll say, hey, I'm U.S. Senator. I'll present my ID, and I'll say, I'd like to get a little tour from the supervisor, just see what's going on. Well, uh, I didn't get a tour. Instead, what I got was a bunch of police cars ar arriving uh, with the intention to arrest me. Uh, and... Um, I explained to the police officers that actually when I had talked to the secretary inside, they said the supervisor would be happy to come out and talk to me. So I felt invited to be there. But it turns out 
that the administration really doesn't want members of Congress or the public to know <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, just just a follow-up question on your last uh, bit there, Senator. Um, you live-streamed uh, your interaction at the facility, and um, what I was really um, interested to see is that they called the police on you to escort you away to get you to sort of off the property. A United States senator visiting uh, an immigration uh, uh, detention uh, facility, and you just wanted to sort of see the conditions that these kids uh, were being housed in and, 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 and check on that, and you had the police called on you. Um, what were your thoughts walking away in that moment? <laughs> you know, were you like, am I going to go to jail for this? Or, you know, what was sort of going through your mind then? Well, I tell you, I, when I saw the police cars arriving, I thought, wow, uh, here I am. I'm being very polite, gracious. I'm simply asking to see it. I'm not barging through the, the door. I'm certainly not a, a threat to the kids inside. Uh, and um, the, the idea that between the nonprofit uh, and the Office of Refugee Re Relocation, they're making it so hard for people to see what's going on, makes you worry about what's going on. I wanted to ask questions like, how many kids are in here? I've heard mm -hmm. hundreds and maybe a thousand. There's been this huge 21% surge in kids being detained just from April to May. We know that in one 12-day period in May, because the Department of Homeland Security told us, they separated 658 children from their, their parents. So, and then we heard the report just a couple days ago uh, that uh, they are planning to open military bases to hold children because they have so many children they're, 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 they're collecting. So it's, these children have been traumatized overseas, probably traumatized en route to the U.S., and then we rip them from their parents, and the experts tell us that is one of the worst possible things you can do to mm -hmm. the emotional makeup of a child. The security of the parent is all they have when they come in into the United States. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm very concerned about them. Uh, so just coming off of a primary, uh, I've been a little out of this conversation, but could you kind of help um, us and our audience understand where, uh, where is the separation happening? Are, are people mostly being detained right at the border right now? Are these ICE raids happening in communities um, or other spaces where then families are being separated? I'm just kind of curious why this huge influx. Is, it, is there an operation that has been increased at the border? or? Yes, yeah, so it, 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 this is at the border because these are families that are seeking as, asylum. Sure. There's lots of other things going on with ICE raids around the country right. and, and parents being deported who are parents of American children and so forth. But in this case, it's, it's families arriving at the border. They're either at a checkpoint or they're crossing the border mm -hmm. and presenting themselves to, to border guards. Mm -hmm. By the way, another horrific thing that's going on is that um, there are people being kept on the bridge between Mexico and the U.S., the kind of the entry ramp to the U.S., uh, for days at a time in the heat, not admitting them into the, the border checkpoint. There was there is a, uh, a lawyer who's you know, Harvard-trained professional working with the refugees, uh, and she had gone out on that bridge uh, with water to help people. She was going to go back out there, and she talked to two families. One had been on the bridge for 10 days, one for 12 days. And she said, here's the problem. They're slow-walking these folks so that they will not try to present themselves legally here at the checkpoint. And then if they go around and present themselves to a border patrol outside the checkpoint, well, then they can say, well, they're trying to enter illegally. Mm -hmm. She also said if they go back across the bridge into the adjoining Mexican city, there's gangs there that know they are easy prey, that they have no support network, and there have been kidnappings 
uh, in which the kidnappings have occurred and then people have been held hostage for ransom. So it's very dangerous for them to walk back across that, that ramp. Has immigration always been an issue that's been near and dear to your heart as a senator or even as an individual? I'd, I'd be very curious to kind of understand what is pushing you. I mean, other than this being obviously a complete atrocity, um, and we need more leaders like yourself who are really um, kind of rolling up their sleeves and going there themselves to figure this out. But what's the driving force there for you? Well, in the last uh, two years, it's become such a point of conversation because of the way that the administration is treating dreamers and dreamers' families. Uh, in my home state, we have a lot of dreamers. They have grown up in the United States. They've, they've been in our schools. They've been in our colleges. They've, they've been in our apprenticeship programs. They're working. They're contributing to the community. And then President Trump ripped away mm. their legal status. Mm. And mm. in so doing, uh, he also enabled the immigration to start using the information they presented, which we promised would not be used to pursue their parents, to pursue their families. And so they were... were Presenting this case, working very hard last year to say, "Hey, hey, Mr. President, what are you, what are you doing to us? This is unfair. This is inappropriate. It hurts our communities." Certainly, many of us in Congress were saying, "We need to pass a bill to rectify this." The president could rectify it just by changing his his order uh, mm -hmm. of how he's treating the immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we were, we had hoped to pass a bipartisan bill, and the president had this experience where he brought in the House and Senate, the Democrats and Republicans, and everything was happy. He had the, the, the television in there for an hour. And he said, you know, like, I, I am so ready to solve this problem. You bring a, a bipartisan bill. I'm ready to take the heat, and I'm ready to get this done. Two days later, senators go up, Democrats and Republicans present the bipartisan bill, and the president, after two days of Breitbart pushing on him, collapsed into a spineless heap, and he's been treating immigrants uh, with horrific terms, uh, referring to them all as MS-13 gang members, <laughs> recently he called them animals. Uh, he's trying to turn it into a campaign issue. There's no human decency in the way the president is approaching the issue of immigrants to the United mm -hmm. States of America. Mm -hmm. Mr. Senator, uh, we're going to switch gears here. Um, but before I do, I just want to say thank you for your work. This is a uh, human tragedy that's happening right now, so I appreciate you. Uh, leading on this issue and driving attention towards it. Um, you've been traveling around the country talking to voters, um, and certainly this issue is now beginning to be top of mind for a lot of voters, but there are a lot of other issues out there as well. So just kind of let us know, what have you been hearing as you talk to folks around the country? Folks are very disturbed that the, the, the things that are creating the foundation for families to thrive are being completely ignored by this administration. It boils down to health care, housing, education, and living wage jobs. Those are the foundations for thriving families. And uh, the, the administration's budget uh, guts those things. They don't pay attention to them. Uh, and then also stewardship of, of our planet. In much of the country, you can really feel the impact of climate chaos. We saw it with the three hurricanes last year hitting the southeast. We saw it with massive forest fires hitting the, the northwest. And we saw it with more drought and more deluges in other parts of the country, including changes here in, in Iowa. And then related to all this is the issue of restoring the integrity of our institutions in the United States. The Supreme Court's been compromised by the theft of a Supreme Court seat. The president's degraded the executive. The Senate is, is, is paralyzed. 
Uh, and we're getting not government by and for the people, but by and for the powerful, the wealthy and the well-connected. It's a complete inversion of the principles our country were founded on. People are very angry about that. They're very frustrated, and they want to see a return to the, the vision our country was founded on, that we do have uh, policies and laws that reflect an effort to address the will of the people. Wow. Um, Senator, a lot of us uh, who don't live in D.C. or aren't necessarily um, in tune with the 24-hour uh, political news cycle, um, we hear things about the Robert Mueller investigation. Um, we hear things about collusion. Um, as, a, as a sitting United States senator, what's your perspective on the ongoing investigation into the Trump uh, campaign um, and whether or not it colluded with Russia or received improper uh, aid in it and during the uh, during the election. Well, certainly we know Russia interfered in the election. There's mm -hmm. massive, massive evidence of this. They set up a botnet uh, network that weighed in with uh, millions of comments in social media, but computer generated designed to essentially put issues onto Facebook in a fashion that would pre help President Trump as a candidate. They, they raided the computers of the Democratic Party. They released critical information at, at critical moments. In addition to their botnets, they had a building with 1,000 people pretending they were Americans, weighing in on social media. They tried to make people uh, angry by, by driving themes and, and creating fake events uh, to make rural folks angry with urban people or to drive social divisions uh, along the lines that President Trump was campaigning on as he attacked different groups of, of Americans. So th the question then is how much communication was there between the Trump campaign? And now we see from the series of indictments that there's a lot of communication. Did it constitute collaboration? That's what we're waiting for Mueller to, to lay out for, for Congress in a clear fashion. And the House will have to take it from there. Yeah, it seems like at every opportunity this president has to offend our allies, he does so. And if he's given an opportunity to, to cozy up to um, people that have been adversaries historically um, with the United States, he does that as well. Uh, over the past 48 hours or so, um, we've been talking about the G7 summit, uh, President Trump leaving early and, and on his way out had some choice words uh, for Prime Minister uh, of Canada, Justin Trudeau, and he's on his way to Singapore to meet with Kim Jong-un um, for the United States uh, North Korea summit. Who knows what will come of that? But it's I think it's really interesting and, and troubling um, that uh, at every at every juncture, at every point, he's offending people that are that are share our values, that are democratic societies. That should be he should be building bridges and, and strengthening relationships with the likes of Canada, with our European allies. But yet, when it comes to Russia, when it comes to North Korea, when it comes to even the Philippines, um, he has very positive, <laughs> encouraging words to say. How do you make sense of that? And and if you know, what's the sort of the dialogue uh, in the Senate um, when you hear the president? Or you hear the administration in the White House communicating those types of things? Well, I'm profoundly troubled because, as, as you say, he's cozied up to dictators who are attacking our allies. In just the last couple of weeks, we saw uh, that he decided to let ZTE off, off the hook because he said it would hurt jobs in China. Well, I'd like to see a president fighting for jobs in the United States, not jobs in China. And this ZTE, I mean, they evaded our sanctions on Iran and North Korea. How can you let them, how can you let them off the hook? 
Uh, then he proceeds to say Russia should join the G8, the Russia that has not uh, backed away from its invasion of Crimea, its mm -hmm. occupation of the Ukraine. Uh, it has uh, proceeded uh, to uh, violate norms and including a recent chemical attack to uh, kill, a, kill a Russian uh, emigree to, uh, uh, to uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, and so uh, Putin, absolute playing the role of a dictator, uh, is uh, why, why would we include him at this point with all that Russia's been doing when we should be applying, and Russia having intervened in our elections? I mean, he, Russia, Putin, authorized attacking the foundation of our democracy. That is really an act of war against the United States. Why is the president closing up to him? And then we see him attack our allies this morning, uh, as, as you were saying. And, and uh, here's the thing. He was attacking them on trade. But trade with nations that have similar labor laws, similar environmental laws, similar wages, was the very powerful factor, that the engine that drove prosperity between 1945 and 1975. Middle class rose enormously during trade with those nations. We have been suffering not from trade with those nations, but trade with nations that have very low wages, very low environmental standards, who are allowed full access to a market like China. So he's attacking the wrong target. So shifting gears again. Um, so we were kind of, we wanted to hear from you directly. You were the only U.S. Senator to endorse uh, Bernie Sanders and his run for president, presidency, excuse me. So talk to us about that. Um, how did you come about that decision? Well, I, I work with Bernie in the Senate. Uh, uh, he was very much laying out what has happened over the last three decades in which the country has shifted to the right and more to the right and then even further to the right and then beyond that to the further right. I mean, it's been, it's been four decades in which wages have been flat for workers while the prosperity of the country overall has gone way up. Yeah. And where's that wealth? It means it's at the very top, and now those who are at the very top are spending that money under Citizens United to essentially buy the Congress and drive policymaking by and for the best off rather than by and for the people. He understood uh, that. He understood that health care is way too complicated. Uh, it's, it's way too expensive. We need to take on the drug companies. We need to have a, a seamless, simple system of Medicare for all so that when mm -hmm. your family member gets sick, they get the care they need just mm -hmm. by virtue of living here in the United States of America. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of just came off of a, a campaign that one of the biggest issues that we were running on was uh, health care for all, single payer universal health care. Uh, so in, as you've been traveling around, you continue to hear, I mean, when we just asked you the question, what you're hearing on the ground, you said, to the extent people are talking about health care, do you think that's the direction we need to move in the country towards a universal Medicare for all? Well, I do. And I've laid out a bill called Choose Medicare that makes Medicare a public option. So people can spend the money, their tax credits and their personal money that they're spending on the exchange, they can buy a Medicare policy. And uh, companies uh, that are providing uh, health care for their employees can buy a Medicare policy. Mm -hmm. Medicare only spends 2 or 3% on overhead, while a private company spends 20%. Mm -hmm. Having the competition with a public option, it's not subsidized by the government, have to play on a level playing field with the companies, can have dramatic effects. We created a public option in Oregon for workers' compensation, and it cut the cost of workers' comp health care in the workplace in half. Mm -hmm. Rhode Island looked around the country. The insurance commissioner at that time was Sheldon Whitehouse, who's now a fellow U.S. senator. He looked around the country for the best strategy for cost-effective health care in the workplace. 
He took the Oregon plan. He implemented it. It cut the cost of health care in half. Mm -hmm. So we need a public option. I've been fighting for one since 2009. I'm sorry it wasn't included. But this strategy, this Choose Medicare bill that I've written in partnership with Chris Murphy of Connecticut, will take us uh, in the direction in a way that allows people to voluntarily move towards a more cost-effective plan that will also create competition and drive down the cost of private insurance. Yeah. So back to your decision about uh, Bernie Sanders. So um, in that experience, was it as empowering as it was uh, maybe alienating at times to be the only senator kind of in the Bernie Sanders camp, at least publicly? You know, I, I, I have fought a lot of battles in my life. I, I come from a blue-collar family that believes in the vision of America of opportunity for all. I saw what had happened in my parents' generation. I thought that our generation was going to see a similar leap forward, uh, but unfortunately, that hasn't happened. So in my advocacy at one point for third world economic development, and then I worked for nearly a decade on strategic nuclear policy, then went back to Oregon and worked on, on affordable housing with Habitat for Humanity and developed affordable housing. In those, in those battles, uh, I was often told, oh, this, this is like David versus Goliath. Mm -hmm. Goliath has the money, they have the power, they have the lobbyists. And, you know, my philosophy is you can't win if you don't get into the fight. And by the way, David won. So <laughs> it's not impossible. So let's go in there and carry the fight. Fight for what we deserve. Yeah. yeah. Took on the payday lenders in Oregon. Yeah. Took on the Republican majority and switched it to a, a Democratic majority. Uh, we took on the, the issues of just a host of, of health care uh, and housing issues, uh, set up a rainy day fund, did a host of things because we were in the fight. Yeah. So, Senator, uh, we, we just concluded our primary in Iowa, and we had record turnout. Uh, the high, the, the um, most voters ever voted in a, a midterm primary election in our state's history. Um, it seems like Democratic voters are engaged and enthused. How can Democratic candidates and Democratic Party continue uh, um, to stoke that momentum and that, in, uh, that engagement among voters? I am so pleased to see so many people running. And uh, that turnout you, you noted from uh, last week's primary, that was beautiful. It shows that a lot of people who are on the sidelines looked around and said, you know what? I thought I, people could get by without my involvement. I should have been involved. And so I will be involved now to try to turn things around from this horrific course we're, we're on. And that's exciting. And there's all these different types of groups that have, have popped up. Uh, and um, there, there are groups uh, like um, Progress Iowa, like Indivisible, where, where every, different neighborhoods are, have organized in a group. I just went to uh, a, a potluck uh, organization that um, uh, is basically set up in a different framework uh, to, to drive campaigns. It's just we've got to harness that energy towards the November election. And uh, that means uh, after the primary is over, people need to come together. Uh, often there's multiple people in a race. Uh, but... Uh, I can tell you, if we don't come together after a primary, we will lose the momentum that we need towards the general election. When I ran against a, a well-entrenched uh, uh, U.S. senator on a race nobody thought could be won, I had a tough primary, uh, and I won by 3%. Uh, my primary partner came out, 
the following day and, and two days later went on a unity tour. Uh, and without us working together, I wouldn't have been able to defeat that Republican entrenched senator. Uh, so uh, that's what we need to, we need to carry that engagement forward, realize that uh, the, uh, it's, it's, this is a year where if we're going to have a comeback for the we the people vision of our country, we've got to seize this moment. Yeah. Senator, for the first time ever on Political Party Live, uh, we, uh, we knew you were coming on the show, so we asked our listeners uh, to reach out with a few questions they might have for you. So our first question uh, is from former Lynn County Supervisor Linda Langston, and she asked on Facebook, what is the key to keeping people engaged with a forward-looking positive agenda? Well, I think it starts with uh, the other half of that that we often hear is, is hey, just don't beat up on Trump. Uh, tell us what you intend to do. That's the positive looking forward uh, vision. And to me, it boils down to three things. It's the factors that provide a foundation for families to thrive. It's much improved stewardship of our, of our planet. And it's restoring our we the people constitutional form of government. Uh, those those three things, and um, uh, within that, of course, there's a lot of meat to to, to chew on. Uh, but you laying out that vision, and then saying by organizing together, we can make those things happen. So people get excited. You have to outwork, you have to out organize, and you have to out inspire the side that has brought us down this tragic course. Out inspire. I like to hear that. Our next question comes from a listener. Brave Crow, and she asked, have you seen legal marijuana sales help the state of Oregon? And I'm, I must preface with saying I'm not uh, even aware of the current uh, status of marijuana in the state of Oregon, but she seems to have more knowledge about it than I do. You know, back when I was in high school, I competed in a, in a uh, speech tournament in which was called impromptu speaking. They give you an envelope, you stand in front of a crowd, you open the envelope, and uh, you pull out the question, you read it, and then you give a speech, a five-minute speech on the topic. And I, so this is my very first time I've ever done this. I open up the envelope, I pull out the piece of paper, and I read it, and it says, Will Oregon become a pot smoker's mecca? <laughs> now, here was the problem. I didn't know what the mecca reference referred to. Uh, but um, uh, Oregon had uh, made it kind of equivalent of a traffic ticket at that time back in the, in the 70s. We've long had uh, medicinal cannabis, uh, and we became the second state after Colorado to have recreational cannabis. And in fact, in my last election, when we were having an initiative on recreational cannabis, I was asked how I felt, and I laid out the pros and cons, but said I'm leaning uh, towards supporting this initiative. Uh, the um, BuzzFeed, about two weeks later, ran a headline first U.S. senator in history to support <laughs> recreational marijuana. And so there, there, you, there you have it. Uh, the, uh, we have seen a positive effect in several ways. One is that we used to have uh, uh, groups coming up and going into the forest and doing illegal pot grows in the forest, uh, leaving a lot of trash, a lot of chemicals, a lot of pollutants, and making it dangerous for people who are just going on hikes. Uh, so that is, is not the case now. Uh, we also uh, have tax revenue that is uh, helpful to the state. It's significant money. One of the things I've been fighting for is to allow the cannabis industry to be banked so that you don't have gym bags and backpacks full of cash 
and you also don't invite, if you will, uh, money laundering, uh, organized crime, uh, the practice of uh, paying less than you should on taxes or less than you should to your employees and, and, and so on and so forth. So we need to, but that, that requires federal action. I've had a, a bill on this that's passed the Appropriations Committee twice. Uh, it has been uh, cut out in conference twice, but I'm hoping third time's a charm. Then, can I ask a question? Uh, actually, because uh, I, did, I, I looked at your, uh, Oregon a little bit in the primary because my candidate also supported the legalization of personal use of marijuana. Um, so didn't you guys also earmark money to specific things like, I believe, housing and education in to, to where the taxes from the sale of recreational marijuana were sort of earmarked yes. towards the development there's of the some, programs? There's that... some specific earmarks of that or allocations of percents uh -huh. and also money that goes back to the originating jurisdiction. Yeah. What we also, the bill also said any part of the state that wants to vote and say, uh, we do not want the sales in our part of the state, they can do that. And so there's no number, okay. number of parts of the state that have not allowed oh, okay. to have, mm -hmm. have sales. I, I, I have one follow-up uh, to this issue. Uh, as states around the country start to, their thinking starts to evolve on the marijuana question, uh, there have been some leaders who have started to ask the question, well, if we are going to move to legalize uh, what was once a drug, um, uh, then surely there are individuals in our uh, corrections and penal systems that um, are, are now sort of, uh, um, they have been penalized for something that's no longer illegal. And we know um, through reams of uh, data and research that certain demographics in this country are penalized more often, more severely than others. So uh, talk to me about your thinking on where we need to go. If it is the case that the country is moving towards the legalization of marijuana, don't we owe it to people who are locked up right now to, to think about ways in which we could uh, relieve uh, them and think about ways in which there can be a more equitable approach uh, to this legalization? Uh, absolutely. And, and my good friend Cory Booker, Senator Booker from New Jersey, uh, is in the, the lead on this. I'm an enthusiastic uh, co-sponsor of his bill. And uh, uh, he, would, he would point out that if you have a community where cannabis is smoked equally between the white population and the African-American population, there's some significant multiple. I think it's three or four times more likely that the person getting locked up will be African-American. Uh, this is just a fundamental unjust application of our, of our legal system. And uh, realize that what we're talking about here uh, is um, a huge cost to society with the lost productivity of those individuals, a huge cost to the cost of locking people up. Uh, the, it creates a number of antisocial factors for when people are more difficult to reenter society. Uh, so um, uh, we really do need to uh, uh, change the way we address incarceration in this case, and there's more to that story about incarceration. But certainly those who, if we, in a, a place where, where, where states have legalized this, uh, people who have been arrested or incarcerated on this uh, need to have uh, their, their sentences ended. Stacey, that was actually the question I was going to ask, so I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. But when we start talking about criminal justice reform and, and as states legalize the use um, of marijuana um, and what that should say about lots of people that have been locked up and the keys have been thrown away from mm -hmm. our uh, sorted history with through the uh, war on drugs, 
um, and the types of reforms that should lead to, leads into a discussion also about race in our society. Um, we've, for the past several years, we've been having really interesting and critical discussions around race, Black Lives Matter, um, police brutality in, in specific communities. Um, Senator, how, what, what are your thoughts on some of the, the, the dialogue and the discourse we're having around race? Um, and just to sort of, you know, go back to the discussions we were having around Trump, I think his rhetoric, he's, he's emboldened a lot of uh, latent white supremacy or supremacists in our society. And we see, you know, that ticking up, you know, it seems like every other day now, we uh, we can read about someone being black and in a coffee shop and having the police call to them or walking out of their Airbnb and having the police call on them. You know, so all these instances of racial racial bias or white supremacy, supremacy feeling more emboldened um, to be more visible in our society. And I think there's a direct correlation to sort of what they're seeing and hearing from from Trump. So as a as a senator, um, you're here in Iowa elevating certain issues that you care about. You know, what, what are your thoughts on sort of the conversations we're having on race right now? Well, Trump has driven a huge amount of racism and, and bigotry. During his campaign, he attacked Haitian Americans and African Americans and Latin Americans and women Americans and Americans with disabilities and veteran Americans and Muslim Americans. And I'm probably only citing half the list. But I think it's incumbent on all of us to remember that phrase in our Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, indivisible. Why do we say that? We say it because we come from all corners of the earth, and together we proceed to make a more beautiful, more successful, stronger nation now and in the future. And so when the president attacks any given group, we have to stand with those folks in our neighborhood, in our community, and say, we are with you arm in arm, side by side. Together we're building a better America. And we reject this racism and we reject this bigotry. Uh, so that's the philosophy that I'm coming from that I think we have to return to here in the United States of America. Mr. Senator, uh, we've got um, about three more questions that will kind of go a lightning round on. But before I get to the more fun questions, I want to just, I want to ask you, in your view, what do we need to be focusing on as a country? And so if you will, uh, give us your vision for a better America. Well, the vision is an America where we take on uh, the, the uh, gerrymandering, we take on the voter suppression. If you believe in a democratic republic, you want to be on the side of voter empowerment, not voter <laughs> suppression. And we take on these Citizens United money in politics, the billionaire money that is, is, is corrupting our House and our Senate, and by the way, many elections down ballot uh, as, as well. Uh, the Koch brother cartel has decided to spend money to essentially uh, buy, our, buy our country's government, and they've succeeded. And we have to fight back with people power against it. That's why November is so important. That's why grassroots organizing is so important. In doing that, we will be able to address those issues I was talking about, the foundations for families to thrive, better stewardship of our environment, and restoring our institutions. All right. We're going to get to some fun questions. <laughs> Good stuff. Probably, yeah, probably, probably the hardest questions of the, of the evening. Uh, so do you watch uh, the television show Portlandia? Not every episode, but... Uh, <laughs> is it an accurate depiction of Portland? Oh, it does kind of reflect a spirit of Portland that uh, is captured by the bumper sticker, uh, Keep Portland Weird. Yeah. And people from Austin, Texas have complained uh, because they say they invented that. They invented the Keep Austin Weird. 
And so I, I tell them, well, you know, I'll, I'll grant you that. You can keep that phrase, but we do have a Portlandia. You don't have an Austinlandia, uh, so uh, uh, too bad on that score. What's the last book you read? The last book was Lost City of the Monkey God. Very interesting book about an exploration conducted in about 2015 in Honduras about a circle of mountains uh, with two streams running out through a cleft in the mountains that have not had humans living inside that circle of mountains for 500 years. And the investigators went in with a new f- with LIDAR, which can see through the tropical canopy and see man-made formations, found man-made formations, went in there and found these, these ruins. Uh, and, um, and why is it that this area of the jungle has been empty of humans for 500 years. What happened 500 years ago? And they found a plaza with all these offerings to the gods uh, left, and, and then people just disappeared. And the answer appears to be that when Columbus parked off the coast of Honduras, the diseases from his team slowly worked their way inward without any natural resistance, probably smallpox, wiped out the community for people never to return. It tells you a lot about what happened across the Americas uh, with European contact. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Um, last question here for you, Senator. When political party goes live, goes national, and we, we intend to go national, um, and we come to your home state of Oregon, what is the first beer and wine we must try? Because I, from what I understand, Oregon has a, a growing wine industry now as well. It does. We make the best Pinot Noir on the planet. The French are, are very jealous. Uh, the uh, California winemakers are buying up property in, in Oregon. And um, uh, Planet Oregon is my favorite Pinot gift to give because it has Oregon labeled all over it. And it used to have, it doesn't any longer, it used to have a label on the back that was um, alliterative and that it, would, it said something like a, a purely populous product of uh-huh. Pinot. And it went on for about 10 other words. Uh, but, you know, hey, a, a purely populist product of Oregon, hey, that sounds like my politics right there. <laughs> uh, so uh, I loved giving that wine, and I, I still give it all. It doesn't have that great label on the back anymore. And uh, on beer, well, you're just getting me into trouble. You're just getting me in trouble. We have so many great microbrews. But let's shift out of uh, the Portland area, go across the mountains to, uh, to Bend, to the Deschutes Brewery, and get some obsidian stout. All right. Senator, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.